0: Hello and welcome to Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, the Queen's Speech, which was notably short of headline pensions legislation, but which did contain a variety of measures with pensions implications. There is, however, still no sign of auto-enrollment reform, but the government did announce a bill designed to overturn the Supreme Court's ruling in favour of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign that overturned a ban on local boycotts, and that does have implications for the local government pension scheme and others. The online safety bill also delivered, meaning we now take online pension scams and fraud a little bit more seriously than we did, while Pensions Minister Guy Opperman has announced plans to consult on a value-for-money framework slated for November. And joining us to discuss all of that and more are SACA's partner, Helen Ball, and Mark Ornstam, Chair of the Industry Policy Committee of the Pensions Administration and Standards Association. And thank you both very much for joining me. We will kick off with... Auto-enrolment. The industry should by now be accustomed to disappointment when it comes to auto-enrolment reform. That's been on the table since at least 2017, and it is still on the table now, even after everything else has been consumed, which I think makes it the prawn crackers of pensions legislation. Uh, We've had repeated calls for the age limit to be lowered, the earnings trigger to be abolished, the qualifying earnings limit to be lowered. More recently, a suggestion from Hyman's Robertson partner, Chris Noon, that the government introduce state auto-enrolment credits all designed to benefit the lower paid, part-time workers and women. Uh, the government meanwhile has gone no further than to suggest it will revisit these proposals sometime in the middle of this decade. And Helen, I will start with you if that's all right. Is this a significant overstep? Was this the opportunity to announce something to do with auto enrollment reform or should we be satisfied that we will get to it eventually?
1: I think there are some people who are clearly disappointed because the survey that took place on auto enrollment in 2017 feels like quite a long time ago now five years is a long time to wait for new law and as many lawyers know getting legislation actually on the statute books and then into practice does take some time so in one sense it is a missed opportunity because we've waited five years and as yet we can't yet see when we're going to get that law so it could be a little while yet and Mid 2020s feels like it's going to arrive sooner than we would expect. So hopefully, it's a question of logistics rather than intention on the part of the government, and we will see that sometime soon.
2: It's interesting, though, isn't it, really? Because we're saying mid decades now, not saying we will, but what if we have a change in government in the next election? And if if that happens in 12 months or so to find your feet, then we start the ball rolling we're going to be close to a decade since the 2017 aren't we until we even yeah see a timetable you know hopefully we'll get a timetable well before that but there's long grass and i think we're now in in the fields
1: yeah i i think that's right and i suppose there is a lot of good things that have happened as a result of water enrollment but the the report in 2017 and the things that have happened since have identified some problems with the system that we have and it's not meeting the needs of all the people that it should, and it's well recognised. So you can see why there was the private members bill where people were trying to hurry along the government to get this in place. And with all the other things that have been happening out there in the wider world, you can see how timetables do slip. But I suppose if they were to ask a lot of people in the industry, they would say this should be a priority now going forwards.
0: Sure thing. And, and Mark, I think some, some critics of the, shall we say, the tardiness of, of this introduction, point out that you know the benefits of, of auto enrollment sort of compound, don't they? But I suppose that also means that delaying the introduction of these reforms will also have compound impacts because you're having a lot of people missing out on years of savings they might otherwise have been able to enjoy. Would you then say, in, in terms of priorities for the government, should this be higher up the list in terms of pensions than it is at the moment? Is, is it more important to get maybe partially uh, some of the measures? as opposed to the full package, passed in the next couple of years and maybe revisit some of them later on? Or are we content to wait until the middle of the decade?
2: I personally think there's some there's some low-hanging fruit there. Uh, I think right now you know, there's always a reason not to do something. However, I think given the global situation, it's very understandable that it, it didn't make the Queen's speech this time round. Uh, I think that's that's fair to say. Although we might have only seen a timetable and it might not come in for X amount of years, that the perception... Wouldn't have been very good taking more out of net pay of uh, employers, so we can, we can understand why why it's been uh, potentially kicked down the road a little bit further this time round. My it was the onward, wasn't it? It was the onward work that suggested that uh, saving on the first pound and reducing the age to eighteen injected something like two point seven trillion into UK retirement savings over the working lifetime of the current workforce. So it's a huge benefit. And I I see it something like uh, in conjunction with pension freedoms, the longer we don't sort out sort of defaults or safety nets around pension freedoms, it's like a slow moving car crash. We can see the damage coming down the line, but unless we act, you know, it's still going to take place. And for me, it's the same with this. People are going to be retiring without enough retirement savings and therefore still relying on the state. Absolutely, and just on, on the, the the state question. Obviously, there there are a number
0: of measures sort of recommended by the twenty seventeen review. But we have had suggestions in the last few days of, of measures that perhaps weren't in that review, but would also go some way toward helping alleviate, for example, the gender pensions gap, which which I think was about forty point eight percent at the last figure I saw, which was much higher than than I think. I, I expected it to be. Um, one of these measures is the state pension credits, which Hylands Robertson has recommended. Um, and Helen, if I, if I come to you on this, is that, is that a sensible addition to the 2017 reforms? And are there others that perhaps could be added to the list? Uh, I'm conscious we're already delaying the current suite of measures, but uh, if we were to have our wish list and say it could happen tomorrow, w- would there be anything else that, that could make auto-enrolment work even better?
1: I think it can be complicated for some employers to manage. The the fact that there are these different earnings limits certainly must make payroll more difficult and we see at SACAS what happens when that goes wrong because we have to help people sort that out. So that's evidence that it's not always perfect. I think the danger in wanting your wish list to be a perfect wish list is that you'll never get to the end of it. And As we've just identified, there are some things that probably will be better to get in place sooner rather than later. And the gender pay gap is one of the things I think that's influenced by the fact that this this 10,000 limit at the the bottom end, which cuts out a lot of part-timers who quite often turn out to be women. So what I see is a lot of policy issues combining in this this space. And you've also, Mark's also mentioned pension freedoms, what, what happens at the end of the day which is um, another area which we, we all need to spend a lot more time on. So I think, yes, I think there's lots of things we could add, but I am would be all for get done what is obvious to everybody that can all agree on that and that you can get sorted more quickly. I think the minister had indicated in something I read that he might have wanted another pensions bill. The problem with that is everybody suddenly starts loading everything into the pensions bill and it, and it takes three years to get it through or whatever. I wonder if this is one where we should all be saying, look, yes have a pensions bill if you want but please can we just do this on on its own on a single issue then we all know it can be sorted quicker
0: absolutely my mum once made the mistake of asking my sister to do an amazon wish list for christmas and she was still (laughs) reading through it by next christmas she might even still be reading through it to this day who knows (laughs) So uh, simple things first, I guess. If we move on then from things that weren't in the bill to things that were, industry commentators, I think, were generally much more happy with the provisions in the online safety bill, which is uh, geared toward tackling online scams, fraud, paid-for advertisements. And the government has designated Ofcom as the online safety regulator with the power to level fines of up to £18 million, or 10% of qualifying annual turnover, as well as business disruption measures, and it's placing criminal liability on the managers of tech companies if they don't comply, as well as on anyone who gives Culture Secretary Nadine Doris's chick-lit novels bad reviews. If we try and unpack then the, the online safety measures, um, Mark, and I'll I'll kick off with you on this one. There have been a number of calls for quite some time, haven't there? To, um, including by regulators like the FCA for online tech companies, social media companies to do more to tackle paid-for advertisements in particular. Does the bill include everything that everybody wanted to happen? Is this going to be an effective counter to scams and fraud?
2: I, I think it's not, it's never going to capture everything that everyone wants, but the inclusion of paid advertising. Was an absolute key one for me, and which and Martin Lewis uh, and, and many others, uh, I think the ABI were involved as well, and a wonderful campaign to to ensure that that was part of it. Because I think social media platforms in particular give le- legitimacy just through association to these adverts. It's on your platform, you, surely you've checked it, so it must it must be fine and the thing is anyone can fall for these things i think i saw one in ten people who fell victim to an investment scam or something similar or fraud and it's really scary how quickly these things appear now online you know you google Google one thing, you then go onto another website and it's following you around for the next two days. We've all been there, whether we're shopping for something or whether it's just purely research-driven. I I think people need to be held accountable for what they're sharing on their platform. So for me, it's a really positive step. Sure thing. And
0: Helen, if if I come to you um, on this now, is is there any indication as to what proportion of fraud and scams that, that pension scheme members fall victim to is facilitated by these paid-for ads in particular or by online scams in particular. uh, Do we know sort of how many are likely to be forestalled and prevented by this online safety bill?
1: I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was quite a big number that they were expecting this to, to prevent. And when I think about scams, obviously this has been a dialogue within the industry for quite a few years. And I remember going back to the start of the legislation on, remember, pensions cold calling, and there was quite a lot of talk about that at the time. And what seems to happen is that people shut down certain avenues by which members of the public are approached, whether that's cold calling, whether that's transfers or pension reviews that they offer to do for free. This is just another staging post, isn't it, in the fight against People who are trying to take advantage of those who are more vulnerable than them. And I'm sure that once we fix this, there'll be another thing we need to fix to do with scams. But it seems logical to me that if there's something you could do to prevent even one person out there from losing their hard won pension savings, then you ought to take the opportunity to stop or prevent that risk from occurring. So it's obviously going to be a, a good thing from that point of view. I think for me, a lot of the stuff to do with the online safety bill is around how will it be policed and enforced? Because we we read a lot of the time about, certainly in the past when people have reported fraud incidents, that there isn't always the backup to follow up that to stop it happening again. And with online, I think even more so you you wonder... How will that be policed and, and made good? So, I'm hoping that that can happen and that our customers, our members can be protected better than they are at the moment.
2: I think what was missing as well previously was that joined up approach, wasn't it? So, having, you know, Ofcom named having the, the power to look at this from an online safety regulator's point of view, I think is really important. But I think Helen's point around the, the aftercare, you know, we, we think about the financial loss, but the emotional impact is huge to any any sort of fraud or crime but it is massive so i think it's important that charities and things are are there to 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 help off off the back of being um fraud and and that reporting ongoing support absolutely on
0: on the question of the regulator and, and the policing of it then Um, Obviously, as we've mentioned, Ofcom has been designated as the online safety regulator. So Ofcom, of course, is also the broadcast regulator. It has a number of other roles, responsibilities and rebits. I assume something taking on the Herculean task of also regulating social media will entail significant extra funding for Ofcom. But is there a risk that having... Not a specific new and designated online regulator and instead parceling it over to one that already regulates other broadcast areas might overburden the capacity of that regulator to perhaps take as close a view on this as it should.
1: I guess so. I mean, we know from the operation, I think it's Operation Bloom, which is the existing fraud project, that there are different institutions and regulators working together. So I would expect that although nominally under this bill, it's Ofcom that is responsible, I'm fairly sure that in the case of pension scams, it will be liaising with the regulator and the FCA quite heavily behind the scenes. So I wouldn't assume that it's all falling onto one body. It's just that they have the authority under the legislation to actually enforce it.
2: It'd be interesting to see, though. It's an interesting question, isn't it? It'd be interesting to see how much resource is actually designated over mm-hmm. Ofcom and and how efficient those processes and transfers and communications are between the various channels and regulators. Absolutely, I think so. Some of the the comments
0: that came in in response as well stressed that members still need to be aware for the, the, of the signs of scams, and it can't just be a case of you know uh, hoping that the regulator or some new authority. Prevent scams taking place. Obviously, the online safety bill doesn't strictly cover, you know, guidance and and regulations around guidance for avoiding pension scams. But um, would would you be confident that enough work is being done in in the area of member education as well to hopefully stop people falling victim to them in in the first place, or should more be done in that area as well? And um, Mark, if I come to you on this one
2: yeah I think there's been great strides in this area to be honest. I think there's an awful lot of awareness you know starting with the Scorpion campaign and we've now got tpr's pledge and uh, Margaret uh, Snow does done a wonderful job as well internally within the industry with PC and, and the code. So I think fantastic steps are being taken. Could we do more? I think we can all, always do more. And it's a little bit worrying that we have to say if it's too good to be true, then <laughs> then don't do it, which means sort of limits the service that we give to a certain extent. But, you know, <laughs> we're being a little bit too helpful. Maybe maybe we're the bad guys. But uh, I think great strides are being taken, but I, I do think there's there's always a little bit more.
0: Excellent. Well, in that case, if we move on from one of the measures announced to something, well, rather an announcement of something to be announced, uh, we had Pensions uh, Minister Guy Opperman speaking at a Pensions Playpen event before the Queen's speech, promising a consultation into a value for money framework, which he suggested will take place at around November this year. Uh, He said that costs and charges should no longer be seen as the sole or even the most important metric, arguing that the investment performance and member outcomes should be prioritized. And he also criticized his predecessors for creating a system under which it is impossible to compare costs and charges and added that his preference was eventually to see uh, a single cost and charge emerge, though he did also add that this is a long term. He encouraged the industry to offer him solutions rather than problems. So I thought I would invite our guests to do so here. Although I have to note that the last time we relayed people's suggestions, he blocked our deputy editor on Twitter. So please don't do anything controversial. And I will come to you first, Helen. Um, What what would you be looking for, uh, for this value for money uh, consultation to establish?
1: I think what people are calling for is an easier way of measuring how good is the pension scheme that I'm in. We call it value for members, but it's all about saying, is this is this getting a good deal for the consumer, whether that's a policyholder in, in a contract-based scheme or a member of an occupational scheme or a master trust? And this is something that people have been trying to tackle since 2013 when the Office of Fair Trading did that report saying the pensions world is not really great for consumers. And we've had several goes at this with the DC code, with the 2015 legal changes about governance and different iterations of value for members, the most recent one that is taking effect this year for chair statements for schemes of less than 100 million in assets. So this is showing you all of this, that it's a great idea, but it's actually quite a hard nut to crack. And I think that the latest statement from the pensions minister suggests that he's going to be looking at this again later on in the year. We know that there was a joint consultation from the FCA and the TPR, Pensions Regulator, about value for members. And that's indicative of the general stance of the governing bodies policy makers who are saying now look, we want the contract-based and occupational pension scheme world to sort of move in the same direction in alignment they're not exactly the same but they need to be moving at the same pace and in alignment and that's what the work and pensions committee said in january when it issued its report It doesn't surprise me that he is sort of almost taking over this now from a a central stance. We obviously help lots of clients assess themselves for value and they have support from different consultants and they use different methods of doing that. The idea of converting that into one number is highly attractive, but getting everybody to agree on what that method should be and how you would do it is quite interesting because I think different people value different things. So. It would be good to see what his ideas are, and I'm sure the industry will be supportive of something that simplifies the process, because it will make it cheaper and quicker. But there will be difficulties in getting everybody to align around what that looks like, I think.
2: It's a huge, huge piece of work. And like like you said, Helen, I'm not surprised to hear that DWB is saying, right, we're going to take ownership of it. You know, Thanks so much, regulators, but we're, we're going to take it on later this year. I think three areas, wasn't it? So you had the cost and charges, you had your investment returns slash outcomes, and you had your customer service oversight and governance sort of metrics being suggested. And I, I grew up with the FCA's you know, past performances not an indicator of future returns. So I wonder how, how that sort of fits in so nicely with, with value for money. But I think that's that's a really tricky one. And, and I think it actually needs to be broken into some sort of cohorts as well, because you know some people do life cycling, et cetera, and contribution rates and all, all this sort of side of things to make it meaningful. But on that last one around customer service, oversight and governance, I actually see that as a really fantastic opportunity to shine a light on some of the great work that, that's being done, whether that's through the offerings of uh, workshops, guidance, advice, online facilities, whatever it is. I really think that's, that should be taken as an opportunity. Like I said, everyone will value these things slightly differently, but at least you can list that we are actively engaging with members, we're actively helping in intangible ways.
0: Sure thing. On the question of customer service, obviously, Opperman suggested that the comparability is, is, you know, one of the, if not the principal goal here. Is it possible to have comparable metrics of customer service or is customer service something that would be a great thing to have a measure of, but perhaps something not to include in any test of whether things are comparable or not? Uh, Helen, yeah. if you want to comment on that.
1: I mean, usually in pensions, when I hear people talk about measuring, they talk about two types of measuring. One is in terms of quantity, so numbers, and the other is in terms of quality. And the difficulty with customer services is it falls into the quality bucket. And it's a very subjective form of measurement. So what one organisation may think is great customer service might not be perceived by the customer in that way because they have a different expectation. And I was talking about this at the PMI last week with an independent trustee who's who's got a lot of experience in customer service. And I think one of the key things is finding out what your customer wants. And I think the difficulty here because of the broad universe of customers in pensions terms is they've all got different expectations so people who have different kinds of jobs or different kind of backgrounds or different levels of savings will have different expectations in terms of what constitutes good customer service and that's not to say that you can't try to break it down as Mark said I think breaking it into components is probably going to be the way to go but always being recognizing that you're never going to come up with a perfect system and maybe we need to stop trying to be perfect all the time and just come up with something that actually works for some of the people, some of the time as as a, as a step forward.
0: Excellent. Mark. anything to add?
2: No, I completely agree with that. And, you know, again, I mentioned freedoms and decumulation earlier, and that's, that's something that I feel applies there as well, really. It's a case of keep aiming for perfection and ultimate outcomes. We're never going to, to get there. We're always going to be chasing the tail. But let's just make sure that people aren't in harm or in detriment. That, that's the place to start, really. Make sure people are indeed getting value for money, not necessarily the best of the best. You know, that, that's not always achievable. Excellent. Well, I
0: think that brings us pretty much to the close of the principal part of the programme. Uh, I mentioned, in, I think, in the the invitation, we try and end with this always a pensions angle. And I don't suppose either of you have spotted any bizarre, peculiar pension stories that would uh, fit the bill today.
1: I think there's so much going on in the news is, uh, to to find a pensions angle is is difficult right now. <laughs>
0: that's that is fair enough there is well we say always a pensions angle sometimes as you say it's impossible to spot one through the trees so uh in which case we will round off the program on that note so um thank you both to mark and to helen for joining us and thanks to our listeners for listening to us as ever we will be back in two weeks time and we hope to see you then